Well, good morning, everyone. Don't turn on your wireless mic too soon while you're still talking on the way up. Remember that. Am I in the right spot? Am I okay for you? Welcome to those online as well. And uh, glad to have everybody here this morning. Uh, if you're visitors, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside, and we are currently in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes through the summer. And uh, I'll just catch you up a little bit before we get into chapter 7, which is what we're going to be in today, our seventh lesson. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a man who identifies himself in the book as the preacher or the teacher. And we presume from his biological clues and details, uh, biographical that is, clues, to be King Solomon. And as I said, we're on our seventh message in this lesson from the teacher or from the preacher. And as we've seen so far, the, the general method of the teacher in his teaching is to take us on a journey down various roads and various paths of life. Uh, roads that are common for all of mankind to experience in our search for meaning and purpose and satisfaction for fulfillment and purpose in life. And in his journey, there's no road that he has left untraveled in his search for joy and for meaning and for purpose. He's ransacked all of life under the sun in his search. And the conclusion of the teacher in his search in exploring all of these roads so far is that they have been nothing but an exercise in futility. To find purpose or satisfaction in any of these paths of life, whether it's hedonism or cynicism or materialism or intellectualism or philosophy, is like trying to grasp fog or to catch the wind. It's chasing vapors. There's nothing to any of them he has discovered. Another way of considering Solomon's exploration of these paths to life is to consider each of them as either a friend or an enemy of our finding true purpose and meaning. Whatever road you choose to follow to find purpose ultimately in life, it is either helping you or hindering you. It is working for you or against you. And so we could say that everywhere Solomon has turned to find an ally or a friend in his search for life that is truly life, for life with meaning... He has so far only found an enemy. Every natural thing that we would be inclined as human beings under the sun from our perspective in this material world to pursue in the hope of meaning is at best a distraction and at worst a direct adversary of our discovering real purpose. And so as we read through Ecclesiastes, even while Solomon is exploring all these different roads that we have been looking down or searching for possible allies in his search, we find there's one final destination that the teacher continually identifies as the termination of our search under the sun. There's one enemy on every single road and in every one of his arguments that continually puts an end to his inquiry, death. It's all fruitless. It's all futility. It's all chasing after wind. Because whether you're rich or poor, whether you live to be a thousand years twice, whether you have a large family or a small family, whether you are renowned or unknown, all die. All of the ways in which Ecclesiastes has been interpreted and organized and arranged for study, it would be quite valid to simply see the entire book cover to cover as a search for meaning and purpose that can somehow also account for the inevitability of our death. 
If you just flip through the book chapter by chapter, Solomon continually runs into death and its apparent defeat of all satisfaction and purpose that he can find in life. In 111, there's no remembrance of former things, nor any remembrance of what comes after, of the things yet to be. In 2.16, the wise die, just as the fools die. In 3.20 and 21, all are from the dust, and to dust all shall return. Who knows if the spirit of a man goes upwards? Chapter 4, the dead are more fortunate than the living. Chapter 5, naked we enter the world, and naked we leave the world. Chapter 6, even though a man live twice a thousand years, does he not also die? 8.8, no man has power over the day of his death. Chapter 9, 5 and 10, the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. 10, 14, who can tell what comes after we die? Chapter 11, know that God will bring you to judgment. Chapter 12, the dust returns to the earth and the spirit returns to God. It's unavoidable. Solomon, chapter by chapter keeps running into the same adversary, keeps encountering the same dead end in his search for meaning. Now Solomon, I want you to understand, does not do this in order to encourage us to embrace pessimism. You may read Ecclesiastes and think this is the most depressing book of the Bible, next to Job. But Solomon is not trying to encourage us to be pessimists. Rather, the book of Ecclesiastes is a no-holds-barred embrace of realism. It is an investigation of all the material world under the sun. It is an unblinking examination of all of life. And Solomon would not be a good teacher, he would not be a good preacher, if he did not look unblinkingly into the reality of our mortality. So it must include an examination of death, ultimately. And Solomon does not want us to become discouraged, but to be realistic in the perspective of our life under the sun and ask deep questions about any possibility of hope if death is the final adversary that we encounter on every road. And so in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, you'll notice I skipped chapter 7 in my list, but he talks about death in chapter 7 especially. The teacher confronts what the purpose of death might have to the living. How is what appears to be the ultimate end and all futility, our ultimate enemy, good for us? How how is death actually our most important ally? And the exploration of our mortality might very well lead us counterintuitively to the life that is truly life. That is what the beginning of chapter 7 is about, and we'll just pray before we read those first few verses. Father God, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes again. We thank you for Solomon, the wise, the king, who had done it all, seen it all, experienced it all, explored it all, and then in his later years wrote this sort of journal, this collection of his thoughts that he wants to pass on, especially to the young people in his nation to say, don't be old and foolish like me, be wise. And here is where wisdom lies, in your word. So we turn to it now and ask for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to what you would teach us this day in Christ's name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 7, I'm just going to do verses 1 to 6. There's a lot of wisdom in Ecclesiastes 7, but we're really just going to do six verses uh, today. A good name is better than good ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. 
It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. One of the things you'll notice here is that this is the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon has begun writing as Proverbs. Uh, If you just flip back in your Bible a few pages, you'll notice a whole book of them called Proverbs, uh, 31 chapters of them. And Proverbs and the fact that Solomon shifts to speak in Proverbs is a bit of a uh, literary clue to us that Proverbs, by their very nature, are meant to impart wisdom similar to parables that Jesus taught. So if you were a Hebrew listener and your writer or your teacher began to speak in Proverbs, you would sort of be alerted that there is going to be wisdom here for the one who is keen enough to listen and to discern the wisdom that is present. And in these Proverbs, Solomon is highlighting a phenomenon of wisdom in general and of death specifically that we gain wisdom by leaning into and learning from the very things that we would rather avoid. We see this in other Proverbs. Uh, For instance, although we would rather generally avoid discomfort of discipline, that's not something we enjoy, it is actually in discipline that knowledge is found. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. We all generally prefer to avoid the unpleasant and humbling experience of being corrected. That's something that we would rather stay away from. And yet we learn that whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. We also do not enjoy being rebuked by another person. And so counterintuitively, we would think we should stay away from that. But the psalmist says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. So the next time someone is rebuking you, just lean your head right in there and take that rebuke because it is good for you. We'd rather avoid any sort of trouble or difficulty in our life, but the psalmist also says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes or your law. And so one of the counterintuitive realities of wisdom is that we gain wisdom by leaning into and learning from things we would actually rather avoid. And what that means is is that we have to learn to love instruction from teachers teachers in quote, from things that we would intuitively fear. And this is something Solomon is telling us about wisdom. It's something Solomon here is telling us specifically about death. Ultimately, the goal of wisdom, which is Solomon's goal, the goal of discovering the life that is really life, is that we have to sit and learn at the teacher that we wish to avoid most, our own mortality and our own death. He writes, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. To take something to heart is to embrace it, to contemplate it seriously, to learn from it, be changed by it. And and that is why Solomon declares here, essentially, that funerals are better than baby showers. 
A graveside is a better instructor than a party for anyone who is wise, but we seldom embrace this way of wisdom. The the proverb here is not denying that laughter and feasting don't have their appropriate place in life. There's, There's nothing inherently wrong with a festival or a feast. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding celebration. He, he was no stranger to parties. He wasn't a drunkard, but he was at so many parties, he actually got accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. So parties are okay. Heaven itself is described as a feast. There's, there's no more positive endorsement of parties than that. But in comparison to a funeral here, even the best celebrations here under the sun are superficial at best. Funerals are better because if we take their lesson to heart, we will know better how to live and we will know better how to die. The day of death that makes us wise is not our own death here. Solomon is not talking about our own funeral, obviously, because we are going in this parable to the house of mourning. It's a source of wisdom to us who are alive if we take advantage of it. The funerals that Solomon has in mind here are the funerals of those we know going to their house of mourning or today going to a funeral home. The preacher wants us to understand that it is good for us to deal with death directly, to look at it and confront it head on, to confront our mortality with our eyes wide open. And and this approach is counter to our present society. It would have been far more common many years ago when the loved one who was deceased was actually brought literally to their house or to the house of the family and the family gathered in a house of mourning. And the coffin was often open. You rarely see a coffin anymore, let alone an open coffin at a funeral. It's an urn or a picture with a wreath of the loved one so that we sort of distance ourselves from literally staring our mortality face to face. The influential social commentator Susan Sontag wrote, death is the obscene mystery, the ultimate affront, the thing that cannot be controlled, therefore it can only be denied. Speaking for our own generation back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and for the generation that's followed, I think this is what our culture has increasingly embraced. The denial of death. Fewer open caskets, fewer caskets, fewer funerals even themselves, becoming increasingly less and less common. But Solomon would not have us avoid the special wisdom that funerals provide. In the house of mourning, a funeral home, the conversation is very different than anywhere else. Just think of the funerals that you have attended. Think of the loss and the grief and the sorrow that you have even endured in your own life, or maybe even coping with right now. The the conversations that take place at a funeral are very different than that take place at a party or anywhere else. No one is talking about the weather. No one is talking about the last night's sports game. No one is scrolling through Facebook in the corner or sharing, you know, humorous TikToks. Those activities that are so common at parties are completely inappropriate at a funeral. Instead, what we find in a house of mourning, instead what you find at a funeral is family and friends that are gathered for the most careful instruction and protection of each other's heart. And Solomon says again, counterintuitively perhaps, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
I think if we're honest, if we were given a choice, we would all pick the baby shower or the birthday party over the funeral. We'd rather be at the festival or the feast than at the graveside. So why would Solomon encourage, encourage us to choose attending the funeral? Because it's only at funerals that we see the inevitable road that we will travel, whatever road in life that we might be traveling. There is an inevitable road that we will travel that takes us out from this life under the sun. We've talked in other lessons about the power of the material and the temporary and the imminent frame or the imminent world around us to distract us from the transcendent. And this is what Solomon sees that funerals and sorrow cut through. They cut through the noise of the imminent to give us stark reminders of the transcendent. The remembrance of death helps us like nothing else to filter out the trivial and consider the essential. So Solomon says, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. What's he saying here? The foolish are distracted by song. The the songs maybe he has in mind that are sung at these festivals and these parties that these fools are attending. These mindless songs, these ribald songs, these, you know, frivolous songs. And he says it's a trap to get lulled into listening and being distracted by the foolish song of the party. The laughter and the mirth of those shallow partygoers is another trap of the temporary and the futile world that we live in. It's like throwing a bunch of thin, thorny twigs on a fire. You get a burst of light, an impressive crackling flare, but you're not going to succeed in heating up the pot. The crackling of the burning twigs and thorns may sound like the cackling laughter of you here at a party. The flare of the fire may be dramatic and entertaining, but it's gone in a flash and it accomplishes nothing. It doesn't heat up your pot at all. So Solomon here is making a dramatic illusion that the dry twigs of distraction have nothing of eternal value to teach us or to deliver to us. But in a funeral, in the house of mourning, we are unavoidably confronted with the transcendent, the immaterial, the eternal. The transcendent cannot be avoided in the face of death. You know, it's interesting. You know, if you've listened to any of my sermons, that I often refer to Disney as kind of the bellwether of our current culture. And Disney movies, if you've watched any Disney movie, and you can throw Pixar and a few other ones in there for the last 30 years or so, what you have seen is pure, unadulterated, secular humanism preached to you and to your kids over and over and over again. Disney is all about the triumph of the inner person. Just follow your heart. Only you know what is true. You can choose the road that you should follow. Throw off the oppression of your parents and what everybody else believes. Certainly throw off the misguided ideas of the former generation. And if you look deep inside you, you can find who you truly are. You are a teenage kraken. And you can be free to be who you are. And so Disney unabashedly teaches secular humanism repeatedly in all of their movies. But there's an interesting thing about Disney movies. What happens when death comes up? Even Disney cannot avoid the transcendent. The loved one, 
the child, the wise old grandmother, the guru from somewhere in the east that is giving wisdom. When it's time for them to depart, they begin to glow and they turn into cherry blossoms or fireflies and they drift off into the night to become a star in the sky that is always watching over the young hero. Even Disney can't avoid the transcendent when it comes to death. And that's what Solomon sees. That's what the Bible teaches us. When you're sitting there in the house of mourning, when you are going to the funeral of a friend, it doesn't matter how jaded you are, it doesn't matter how materialistic you are, it doesn't matter how secular you are, you are confronted with the transcendent. It is at funerals where the gap between this world and the next seems to be the thinnest, when the imminent frame of this world is pulled back and we cannot avoid the transcendent. Solomon has discovered the real trick that the material world plays on us and how to overcome it. In his investigation of all life, he's discovered that it is actually endings that reveal what beginnings conceal. This is why funerals are better than birthdays. He says it pretty directly just a couple of verses farther down. If we dip down to Ecclesiastes 7.8, he says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The beginning of any things are are filled with promises and hope, but beginnings do not have much to teach us. Beginnings are what we enjoy. Beginnings are what we love to go to because they are just full of fresh possibilities. Beginnings are filled with questions. Think of going to your first day of high school or your first day of university. The beginning of that moving out of your parents' house and being on campus and four or five years of education ahead of you and all the possibilities that you don't know what's going to happen, but it is fresh and excitement. Or you think of beginning a new career, your first day on the job. I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know what's going to happen, but there is my whole life ahead of me, and I'm going to, you know, this career is going to do something for me, and I'm full of questions and anticipation. Or your first day of your marriage, or, or perhaps the first day back from the honeymoon when you walk in together for the first time into your little apartment, and that whole marriage is in front of you, and you're full of questions. We don't know what's going to happen. Beginnings are full of questions. But endings are what reveal what the beginnings conceal. It is in the end of things that we have all the answers to what began. And so it is in the ending of things, especially the ending of life, where the wise look for the answers of life. There's no avoiding the lesson of Solomon here, nor avoiding what he has found at the end of every road that he has traveled in this book. Death is our final destination, and counterintuitively, death is where we should look for our answers to life. So... Then let's have a little funeral service here today. I bet you weren't expecting that when you came to church this morning, that we were going to have a funeral service. We're just going to have like a little funeral service here, and we're going to see what we can learn from the types of things that might be said at a funeral. And by the way, it's your funeral, and it's my funeral. Here's the other thing the Bible teaches us. We're already dead. Our body is dead. It just hasn't got the message yet. And the real problem, though, isn't just that we are physically dead, that we are not simply going to die in this body. We are all born spiritually dead. There is no life in us even when we are born. 
The spiritual problem that Solomon has in mind is that our physical death is going to be a bad thing if we don't approach it wisely because there is a judgment to come. Remember, he said in 11.9, know that God will bring you to judgment. And so we'll have a little mini funeral here today for me and for you since this is our funeral. The writer of Hebrews makes the reality of our mortality and its result as clear as possible. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that, face the judgment. Both the writer of Hebrews and Solomon acknowledge the fallen condition of man has been our predicament. It's been our predicament actually since the Garden of Eden. You've also noticed that as we go through Ecclesiastes, Solomon is actually addressing Edenic truths, things that are true from Eden. And the legacy of Eden's rebellion lingers with us all. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. When God created all things, he did not create death and call it good. Death is the result of our rebellion, is the result of trying to wrestle sovereignty away from God. Death entered the world because we decided we could govern ourselves better than God, that somehow God was holding out on us and we would decide what was good for us. And we rejected what God intended for us. And so we reaped the result of death. Before mankind sinned, death was impossible. After mankind sinned, death became inevitable. The Apostle Paul explains our predicament this way. In Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, when you think about death, remember, we're at your funeral, and mine. Do you take the time to consider this reality that the Bible is not unclear about. That all sinned. That means you sin. And I sin. Well, you say I'm not the Unabomber or Hitler or anything. My sins are not all that bad. Well, if you said that, you just blew it because that's a sin too, liar. <laughs> we all sin. We all have sinned. Not just once, not just twice, not little sins, but big sins. How many times have you lied? How many times have you lied to protect your reputation or lied to attack somebody else's reputation? How many times have you torn someone down with your words or maybe even hit them with your fist? How many times have you been deceitful? How many times have you been angry and hurtful and abusive? Once a day, twice a day? 400 times a year, 40,000 times in your life, we're all sinners. And there are no little sins. Another thing that God says through James is that forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. The Apostle Paul himself felt the reality of this. 
The Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous in his defense of God, blameless, he says, in his execution of the law as it was written, and yet he did not feel he had escaped this condemnation with everything that he had done and all the law that he knew and everything that he had accomplished as a Pharisee on his own. He knew it was not enough to save him. He says of himself in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's the question, isn't it? That's the question Solomon is asking about death. Who's going to get us past this final enemy? Who is going to find purpose in the futility of death? How are we going to travel this final road safely to have meaningful joy and meaning and purpose in this life and ultimately to overcome the futility of death and have purpose and satisfaction and joy in the next. Well, there's good news for the Apostle Paul, and there's good news for all the wise who stare their own mortality in their face and confront it, as Paul did. Paul is able to see with clarity that Solomon could only see dimly. On the other side of the cross, Paul sees the work of God in death. And he says things to the church, to us. In places like 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For since by a man death came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Amen. Amen indeed. Or Peter says it this way, And he himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. That's the good news. There is a death that counts more than every other death. It's the death of Jesus. He saw the road that we were destined to travel. He knew the futility of us dying in our sin, unable by any work of our own flesh to accomplish anything. Why can't we accomplish anything in our own flesh? Because we're dead. Have you ever been at a funeral and the corpse gives the eulogy or does anything? We are dead. It is only by the grace of God that we even have the breath to pray for forgiveness. Because dead people do nothing. Until Jesus showed up at the funeral and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus could do nothing to bring himself to life. That's how spiritually dead we are. And Jesus saw the futility of that. He saw that we could not travel this road. And so Jesus came, and he is wounded for our healing. He's died that we might live. He says in his own words to the disciples, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Praise God. So who will it be? Who are the ones that the Son will give life to? He doesn't keep it a secret. Just a sentence later, he tells us, Truly, truly, really, really, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed. He has crossed over from death to life. That is whom the Son gives life to, those who trust and believe in him who sent Jesus. Who's that? That's the Father. Trust the Father. Trust God. 
He sent his son. He made his promise. He raised him from the dead to seal the promise, to say, look, this life is sufficient. The perfect life my son lived, the sacrificial death, his blood, his sacrifice is sufficient. Trust me, and you have his life. This is why funerals are better than birthday parties. You don't get messages like that at birthday parties. You you don't get to face the hardest test of your life, which is what will come after at a birthday party. But you face that test at every funeral. So trust in the one who sent Jesus. Trust in the word of God. Trust in his covenant promise with mankind that he is our hope that in him death is never futile. Death is never purposeless. In fact, in Christ, death has been completely transformed to no longer be purposeless, but be purposeful, to no longer be futile, but to be full of hope for the believer. We are no longer spiritually dead, but eternally alive. Oh, we're still going to die physically. There will be a funeral for you, but death is no longer our enemy that waits for us at the end of life's road to pounce on us. Death is defeated by what Jesus has done on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you believe and put your hope in nothing else except Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, the last enemy that you will defeat with Christ is your own death. Death is not an enemy to you. You will crush death when it comes. You do not need to fear death. All death is for you who are believers is an entrance into eternal life and hope and satisfaction. Everything that Solomon was looking for under the sun and could not find is found on the other side of death. By meditating on his death, by contemplating the death of Jesus, by putting your hope in the death of Jesus, by setting your heart on nothing else except his death and his satisfaction for everything that we couldn't do, we gain his victory over death. Jesus said it himself in John 11. Jesus said, this is at that funeral, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live, even if he dies. So Solomon says, don't get excited about parties. Don't get excited about feasts. Don't get excited about baby showers. I mean, yeah, get excited. Baby showers are great. Parties are fine. But Solomon says, the wise man, he pays attention at funerals. The wise man doesn't get caught up in the distractions of pleasure and mirth and silliness and goofiness and Netflix and whatever movie theater he goes to and wherever else, that's all just noise. It's the cackling of burning twigs. The wise man pays attention at funerals, goes into the house of mourning, not just to comfort but to be comforted by the reality of what Christ has done. Death is not obscene. It is not uncontrolled as that commentator believed. 
Death has been tamed by Jesus who entered into it and returned triumphant from it. The first fruits in a resurrection body nobody else has yet, but all who believe in him will inherit an eternal resurrection body to be present in eternity with Christ and the Father and the Spirit forever. Jesus entered into death and returned triumphant. Death has been transformed into the means by which we enter into that final joy and satisfaction with God that we search fruitlessly for under the sun, but can be found in the sun. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this lesson from the teacher from your book of Ecclesiastes, for the counterintuitive nature of wisdom that we have to lean into the very thing that we fear most in order to learn what we need most. And so, Father, I pray that rather than avoid our mortality, rather than close the casket or avoid the funeral or skip the graveside, Rather, we would go to comfort those who need comforting, to mourn with those who mourn, and to go for the good lesson and the sincere tonic that it is for our soul, both believer and non-believer, to come face to face with the transcendent reality that we will all die and we will all be judged. But there is a good and glorious news that Jesus Christ has gone before us and he has accomplished all that needs to be accomplished so that we can stand robed in his righteousness before you and never fear death again, but be set free from the bondage of death into eternal life by trusting in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.